You are listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Presbyterian Church. We are a community in Madison, Wisconsin, who gathers to worship, to learn, to serve, and to grow together in God's love. Please visit us online at www.covenantmadison.org, where you can find information about Covenant Ministries, as well as links to our online worship services and sermon podcasts. Jesus Christ came into this world proclaiming the kingdom of God, the realm of God, the reality of God, the new way of God in the world. And central to this new way of God was the idea of love, love for all people. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we're called to live in this new way, to understand it and then to follow it. Jesus was particularly attentive to people who had been ignored and forgotten. Sick people, poor people, foreign people, and women. Jesus made a point of reaching out to these forgotten people and including them with God's grace and with God's love. Now, things have improved in the last 2,000 years since Jesus walked this earth, but we continue to face challenging situations. This past summer, some Presbyterian folks started circulating this graphic to remind us that Jesus trusted women. All sorts of scripture references from the Gospels here to attest to that fact. I shared this image a couple weeks ago. Our series on the women of Genesis is partly inspired by the fact that Jesus trusted women. The series also is inspired by a statement from our brief statement of faith. The Presbyterian Church has a wonderful statement from 1991, and part of that statement reminds us that God's spirit gives us courage to do all sorts of things, and one of those things is to hear the voices of people long silenced. God's spirit gives us courage to do that. So we have the courage to do it. Now we just kind of need to take the initiative to actually make it happen. And I guess that's what we're trying to do with this series. So when the Adult Education Committee started talking six months ago about doing a Bible study on the book of Genesis in the fall, it starts next Sunday, by the way, 10 o'clock, Bradfield Hall, grab coffee and donuts and join us. I thought, maybe we should do a sermon series on Genesis. And then I thought more and said, let's do a series on the women in Genesis, women that we don't hear a lot about. When we think about the book of Genesis, we often think about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, the patriarchs. The text itself doesn't tell us a lot about the women in that day. With this four-week series, we're trying to listen for their voices and their stories. Last week, you heard about Rebecca. Two weeks ago, you heard about Sarah. Those videos are available online. Next week, you'll hear about Hagar. Today our focus is on the little-known story of Dinah in Genesis chapter 34. It's a lengthy narrative in the scriptures, and I'm going to read the whole thing in three different sections. And a little background is helpful to this narrative. Dinah was the daughter of Jacob and Leah, one of Jacob's several wives. Dinah had 12 brothers. They came to this land of Canaan where they were outsiders, and they were trying to find their way in this new land. The text says that Dinah went to visit some of the women in the community. 
And then she was seized, that verb, according to one translation, by a Canaanite man named Shechem, who was not part of her clan, her tribe, her people, an outsider to the people of Israel, if you will. So Hamor, who was the father of Shechem and the king of the area, uh, Shechem himself was a prince, tries to arrange a marriage between this seized woman and his son, hoping to bring these communities together. So listen for the language in this story and listen for the nature of the relationship between the two people. God's word from Genesis 34. Now Dinah, daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the region. When Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the region, saw her, he seized her and lay with her by force. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl to be my wife. Now Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with cattle in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him, just as the sons of Jacob came in from the field. When they heard of it, the men were indignant and very angry because he had committed an outrage in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The heart of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Make marriages with us. Give us your daughters to give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall live with us, and the land shall be open to you. Live and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to his father and to his brothers, Let me find favor with you, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Put the marriage present, put the marriage present and gift as high as you like, and I will give whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So at the time of Dinah, as you can see by this reading, women were treated like property. And there's this trade negotiation going on between the, the, the two fathers. Women's sexuality was not their own. One commentator described the scene and said, Dinah's virginity belonged to her father, Jacob. And with her virginity gone, with this property of her father gone, she was considered to be damaged goods, in the eyes of many people, undesirable. So Hamor, this outsider, makes a proposal to Jacob that's actually consistent with Jacob's tradition. The book of Exodus tells us the law that Jacob and his family were supposedly following. It says, when a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to be married, uh, just as, as we read this, we just need to remember, this is 2,000 plus years ago, different culture, different time. Um, when a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to be married and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. But if her father refuses to give her to him, he shall pay an equal amount to the bride price for virgin. So Hamor, the Canaanite king, is actually following the Israelite law in making this proposal to Jacob. Jacob seems curious, interested in the proposal, but some of his sons weren't so enthusiastic about it. They had different ideas involving circumcision. You might remember that Sarah and Abraham were called by God to be a special people, and they were given a, a new covenant 
And part of that covenant was this idea of circumcision, to mark them as monotheists, as worshipers of the one God. And circumcision was the mark of distinction for this people in a world of polytheists. Circumcision is a mark kind of like baptism is a mark for Christians, a mark of distinction, a, a claim of being God's own. So Dinah's brother suggests that Shechem, this outsider, be circumcised hypothetically to make things better, to incorporate him and his family into their community. Well, the story of Dinah continues, and notice again how women are discussed and treated like property. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you that you will become as we are and every male among you be circumcised. Then we will give you our daughters and we will take your daughters for ourselves and we will live among you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was most, the most honored of all his family. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of the city saying, these people are friendly with us. Let them live in the land and trade in it, for the land is large enough for them. Let them take their daughters, let us take their daughters in marriage, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will they agree to live among us, to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their animals be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will live among us. And all who went out the city gate heeded Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. So these outsiders make this effort to reconcile with Jacob and his family. It seems like we're moving in the right direction towards some sort of political, economic, religious collaboration here. Circumcision of Hamor and his people seemed to be a gesture towards that, but as we know, all too sadly, just because someone says something nice or just because someone appears to be religious, it doesn't mean they will act in a just or righteous way. The story concludes with a violent twist. Here's the final section of Genesis 34. On the third day, when the men were still in pain, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city unawares and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And the other sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their, their sister had been defiled. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and the, and the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and made their prey. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, but if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should her sister be treated like a prostitute? 
And that's the extent of Genesis chapter 34. Now, this chapter in the Bible could have been interpreted in all sorts of ways and used for all sorts of, I think, helpful teaching about how to treat one another, how men could and should treat women, sexual violence, talk about greed and, and, uh, and murder. But all too often, this has been used to continue to silence women. John Calvin, beloved John Calvin, I great, great gratitude for John Calvin, but not in his interpretation of this chapter, because he wrote many years ago, Dinah is ravished because, having left her father's house, she wandered about more freely than was proper. The words are they're almost comical, but they're really not because of the circumstances. She ought to have remained quietly at home, as both the apostle teaches and nature itself dictates. So says John Calvin. Sadly, too often, even to this day, women are blamed when they're attacked, when they're raped. You shouldn't have worn that clothes. You shouldn't have been in that place. You shouldn't have had that to drink. You shouldn't have said that thing. Right? So it's a, a challenging circumstance to be thinking about these questions. But digging a little deeper with this chapter of the Bible, there's another question that comes up. A fascinating question that's been presented by a lot of biblical scholars, including feminist biblical scholars, who ask, was Dinah actually raped? Or perhaps was this a consensual relationship that was described very differently by her brothers and those who wrote the history? It is curious how the story emphasizes how much Shechem actually loved her and apparently really wanted her to be his wife. This is not exactly what we might expect if someone had just committed a violent rape. The Hebrew words are actually a little ambiguous here. One of the words used for Shechem's attack or encounter with Dinah suggests violence, seized. Sometimes it's translated in the actual Bible as rape. But another verb in another part of the story is the verb is used with consensual relationships. They lay with one another. They shared time together. So the questions arise. The novel The Red Tent is a creative retelling of the story of Dinah, Genesis chapter 34, presenting Dinah and Shechem in a different way, as being madly in love with one another. It's really a love story. And Dinah is distraught in the novel about the way her brothers react and kill everybody in the town. It's fascinating, and it's at least worth considering what really happened here. Yes, I'm fully aware that a novel is not scripture, but as Presbyterians, we need to remember we don't worship the Bible as the inerrant, without error word of God, but we see it as the inspired word of God. God speaking to us through the scriptures where we have to ask questions and think, what does this mean and how do we live with this and how do we, how do we follow Jesus given what the, the scriptures say? With women's voices being so rare in stories like this, I think it's helpful to have a novel like this to help us imagine, to ponder what were Dinah and Leah and Rachel and other women, what were they thinking, what were they feeling, what were they experiencing? Because we don't get that in the biblical text that we have. So maybe one of the women of the town introduced Shechem and Dinah to one another 
and a romance developed. Maybe Dinah saw Shechem at the marketplace and flirted with him a little bit. Maybe Dinah wanted to get out of her family. The text presents a family that's rather dysfunctional and unhealthy. Maybe she just wanted out. We don't know. We don't know what happened with that because nobody talks to Dinah. This whole big long chapter all about Dinah. Did you notice? Dinah doesn't say a word. There's nothing recorded about what Dinah said or thought or felt. Her brothers and her father could have asked her a few simple questions. Who is this man, Shechem? Are you in love? Did he rape you? Did he hurt you? How can we help you, Dinah? But at least according to the text that we have, nothing. Dinah has not asked for her opinion, and Dinah is silent in this text. She doesn't say a single thing. And that reflects the sad reality of too many years of human history where women and others have been silenced, and religion has played a big part in that silencing, controlling who gets to talk and who doesn't. A couple months ago, I reached out to Shannon Berry, who's the Executive Director of Domestic Abuse Intervention Services, a wonderful organization here in Madison, longtime partner of this church. Your mission dollars go to support the good work that happens there. She spoke here at this church several months ago, and I told her a little bit about this sermon series, and I asked her if she knew of stories or knew of people who had suffered abuse at the hands of people who were giving religious justifications for it. And sadly, she had several stories to share. Here's one of them. The director of, executive director of Domestic Abuse Intervention Services shared this story. She said, there was a survivor in shelter recently whose father was a minister. She grew up in a faith-first family and brought that faith into adulthood. She got married, and soon her husband started controlling her daily activities and who she could talk to and spend time with. Whenever she would push back against his control, he would tell her that God ordained him to be the head of the family and that disobeying him was equal to disobeying God. He would quote scriptures about women obeying their husbands as well as passages that say women should be silent. He coerced sex from her by using the passage that speaks about not withholding the marital bed from spouse. For many years, she submitted to the abuse she was experiencing because she felt like God was testing her faithfulness. When the abuse expanded to the children, she left. Even after leaving, she still struggled with the morality of her decision. Sorry to be heavy like this on a day we're celebrating baptism and joy, but the reality is there, and we need to acknowledge it. There's a lot of pain and suffering in the world, and some of it comes because we've missed the boat with our religious traditions and haven't heard the voices that we need to hear or, or shared God's love in the way that I think it's meant to be shared with everyone. We can do better. As people of faith, hope, and love, as people who claim to be Christians, followers of Jesus, we can do better at sharing that love that Jesus came to share with everyone. And it starts with recognizing the truth. So that's why sometimes we have to face the hard truths like today. Even as religious people, Sometimes we don't listen to one another. And we do that for a variety of reasons. Sometimes we don't listen to people because of their gender, because of their gender identity, because of their sexual orientation. Sometimes we don't listen to people because of their race, their ethnicity, 
their passport, their accent, their skin color. Sometimes we don't listen to people because of the yard signs that they put out when elections are around or who they vote for or what channel they watch to get their news. Sometimes we don't even listen to our loved ones. The more I journey in the Christian life, I really think listening is a vital aspect of the Christian life, listening to one another and listening to God. So my hope with this series is that we can look at these biblical narratives and kind of peek in between the words and try, with the the help of God, to, to listen to the stories of people whose voices have been silenced, and then that might just help us to live more faithfully and really listen to one another and to do what we're meant to do as followers of Jesus and make this world a better place. I think about that in our liturgy on Sundays when we Early in the service, Melissa led this part of it. We confess our sin. We acknowledge that we have fallen short in all sorts of ways, and part of that's listening. Not listening to God, not listening to one another. We ask God's forgiveness, and we know God is gracious and merciful. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Great is God's faithfulness. God continues to forgive us and send us off with the hope that we might be transformed by that forgiveness. It's a slow process, friends. But we need to stay with the journey of letting God change us and transform us and make us new people. Get the wax out of our ears so we can really hear one another and really care for one another and really love one another. So we we pray for forgiveness. We hear the good news and we resolve to welcome the transforming love of God. And then we share the peace together. We shake hands with one another. We look at one another and say, the peace of Christ be with you, reminding us that we're in this together, that we need one another to make this happen. So as far as I'm concerned, if we're truly committed here at Covenant to learning God's love and living God's love, if we're truly committed in some sense as Christians to live the Christian life or be followers of Jesus, or if we just want to be decent people, we need to do a better job of listening, listening to one another, put ourselves in a position of humility and openness. May God speak to us. May we listen. Amen.